So this last summer, my wife and I went uh, shopping to buy me some new dress clothes. And to be honest, this is not one of my favorite things to do. So like the last time we did this was like six years ago. <laughs> but Maya was going to be there to help me out while our kids went with their grandparents to an arcade. So it was, it was just the two of, two of us. And when we got to the store, a style expert um, met us and immediately started pulling jackets and pants and clothes off the rack and, and having me to have me try them on and asking questions like, how does this feel? Or what do you think about this jacket with this shirt? Or how do, how do these pants go with? And these are all questions that I had no idea how to answer. So I looked at, at Maya hoping for, for some rescue. And, and in that moment, her phone rang um, with the news that the arcade was no longer open. Oh, can you imagine? So the kids were hungry, and they were disappointed, which was becoming a catastrophe that Maya was needing to pay attention to. And to be honest, in that moment, I was starting to panic too, because I knew that she wasn't paying attention to me. So uh, right then, though, the salesperson said to me, Tim, listen, I've been doing this for about 25 years here, and I guarantee you that I can make you look good. but I can see that you need your wife's approval. So how about we try a few different options, and then when Maya comes back, we can make our final decisions. That was the smartest thing that anybody could have said to me. I was so, so relieved. I was like, this is a great idea. This is a great plan. Because when you have no idea what you're doing, it's really helpful to get the approval of someone that you trust, right? When you're not sure sort of how to navigate life, it's really helpful to get the wisdom of the wider community that you trust and that you're a part of. Unfortunately, through most of human history, societies have been organized to require the approval of another, not based on trust, not based on the value of our community, but based solely on external markers like gender or skin color right? In particular, the voice of a man has often been needed to approve or affirm the ideas or actions of a woman or people of other gender identities. It doesn't matter if we don't know what we're doing or not. And we see this today in Luke chapter 1, where Elizabeth and Zechariah have a son. And the community wants to name their son after his father, but Elizabeth, who just carried this child for nine months, who just protected and nourished this child with her body for nine months, Elizabeth, who just gave birth to this child, said, no, his name is John. And everyone was like, but that's not what we normally do. You're not allowed to do that. There's nobody in our family named John. So what do you do in a patriarchal society if a woman wants to do something non-traditional? You ask the man, right? So they asked Zechariah, who had to write, my wife is right. He actually wrote, his name is John, which meant that he was agreeing with his wife. So great. But in this moment, we see how society is organized. We see how society was organized for Elizabeth and what she needed to be validated. She needed the voice of a man to validate what she said. 
But you might remember that the story of John's birth is what sets the stage for Jesus' birth. John prepares the way for Jesus, and it's the Christmas story that turns the world upside down. So Mary sings that the powerful will be brought low and those on the bottom of society will be lifted up. The world will be turned upside down. So for most of this chapter, it's interesting because Zechariah, who is a man and a religious leader, like at least one of us here, loses the ability to speak at all. So the voice of male authority has been silenced in this chapter, and in the silence we begin to hear the powerful voices of Mary and Elizabeth. And we have to wonder, do we even get to hear Mary's prophetic song if Zechariah the priest is still able to preach? Do we get to hear Elizabeth's prophetic voice if her religious husband is still able to speak? I don't know. I was once doing a radio show with a friend of mine, uh, Reggie Williams, who is a professor of Christian ethics at a school in Chicago, and I asked him this question, how can we help give voice to those who are marginalized in society or, or those who don't have a voice? Now, we are friends. We played basketball together or against each other in seminary. We were neighbors. Uh, and so I should have known that something was a little off when he called me Reverend Vance. <laughs> he said, Reverend Vance, I think I understand what you're trying to say, but let's just start with your question. What makes you think that you have the power to give people voice? They have a voice. It's their voice. You can't give them their voice. And he was absolutely right. Like, I am a white American male religious leader. And my question betrayed my own bias and cultural assumptions in that position, right? I am the one who gives. They receive. They have a need. I offer the solution. Someone asks a question. The pastor answers the question. That was my cultural and continues in many ways to be my assumption and my bias. And in truth, however, I, I only have control over my own voice. It's so hard for us. I know it's really hard for us that we can't control what other people do and say, but I have control over my voice, which means that hopefully I can use that voice for good rather than evil. But what the story of Zechariah tells us or reminds me is that for someone who gets to talk a lot, for someone who is given a microphone and able to speak in church, sometimes it's most important for me to be silent. That there's value in me not talking. Sometimes when the voices of power and privilege shut up just for a moment, other voices are able to be heard. The voices of those on the edges of society are already speaking. They're already speaking. They've actually been speaking and crying out from the very beginning of history, human history at least. But the stories of those on the top are so loud and constant that it's hard for us to listen. 
So thank God that Zechariah is silent for most of Luke chapter 1. Because then we get to hear Mary and we get to hear Elizabeth and their prophetic voice. But one of the problems that we have with our hyper-individualistic culture is that we tend to see these type of, of situations through um, the lens of subtraction. So we think, but if their voice is, is lifted up, that must mean that my voice is lost. But if, if we honor their suffering, then that must mean that my pain doesn't mean anything or that my pain is ignored. But that's not how God's economy works. Instead, as a global community joined together by God's Spirit and our common humanity, what we get instead is multiplication. Can we, can we understand that? When the voice of the oppressed is lifted up, we all discover what it means to have a voice. When the pain of others is acknowledged, there is room for our pain to be taken seriously too. It's not either or. So when Zechariah is put on mute, we hear the voices of Mary and Elizabeth. And then hearing their voices and their song, Zechariah then discovers his own more authentic voice at the end of the chapter. So, so he then sings at the end of Luke chapter 1, here in, in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. So notice this multiplication. When Mary sings, we hear her saying that God has looked upon me with favor. God has looked upon her with favor in her lowliness or in her poverty or in her experience of oppression as a woman in this ancient culture. God has looked with favor upon this individual, and this leads Zechariah to realize that if God sees her, then God sees us. If God fa God's favor is upon her, then surely God's favor is upon all of his people. Mary's favor does not negate God's love and favor for all of us. So the role of a priest in a temple is to be a representative of the people. But here, Mary is the priest. Mary stands as the representative of the people. Her voice becomes the voice of everyone, longing for a world made right. Her voice becomes the voice of Zechariah and the people longing for the world to be turned upside down by God's love and grace. And so Zechariah concludes his song with this, having been silent for so long, listening. He says, because of the tender mercy of God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Perhaps this is why we sing Silent Night holy night, because there is something holy about the silence, a at least a silence that allows the ignored voices of our world to be heard. When those voices are lifted up, a new day begins to dawn. The world can change. 
When the marginalized voices are lifted up, light begins to shine in the darkness for all of us. When people like me stop talking just for a moment so that we can listen, a new path is revealed to guide us in the way of peace. In the midst of conflict and division in our world, if we stop talking for a moment to listen, we will be guided on the way of peace, which I guess is my cue to shut up and to end the sermon. <laughs> and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. <laughs>